What's up, guys? Welcome to the Outpost Community Church Sunday podcast. Currently, we are walking through the book of Matthew. And it is our prayer that these messages will inspire you to follow Jesus with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And we're praying that you have a, a great, great week, week of, of worship. worship. Enjoy. So glad you're here. Um, I am not teaching this morning, so I want to introduce you to some friends of mine, uh, Brad and Natalie Yates, who are here, and they are from, don't knock them, but they're from Teton County, is what they say. We call, what do we call it? Yeah, we call it the black hole, right? No, I'm just kidding. Um, But they're from Jackson, and they, uh, we met uh, through a a really amazing, um, I don't know how I'm trying to, what kind of words I'm trying to use here, but it was cool how we met. So how we met was, uh, if some of you guys know, I went to a place called Watermark Community Church and did some training down there for a year. And uh, at the end of that time, we were in COVID. I'm sorry I brought that up. But uh, these guys were living in Jackson, and they were praying for their city in Jackson, praying for the state, praying for Wyoming, that God would raise up a church, and th- there would be a church that is Man, resembled what they came out of at Watermark, because they spent about a decade at Watermark serving and growing, and you're going to hear a little bit about that in Natalie's story. And so they've been praying for it, and then one day they tuned into the Watermark service, and they saw me standing on a stage with a group of men, and they were praying for me because I was being sent back to Cody, Wyoming. And so Brad did uh, due diligence, and he called a few of his friends back at Watermark and did basically a background check. Is this guy legit? And they said, he's too legit. So legit, we're going to send him back to Wyoming. We can't keep him. He's too good for us, right? No. And uh, so uh, came back up to Wyoming. He eventually reached out to me. We got to know one another. He came and visited us very early on when we were in the rec center when it was just this amount of people. So he actually has seen this version of Alpos before. And uh, he has been a, they both have been a prayerful, uh, faithful, loving support of this church. And you didn't even know that. You didn't know they existed. And so I'm really thankful they're here. Uh, Brad and I also got to go to Israel together. We were roommates, which was a blast. You really get to know each other really well. And we're still friends. We came out of that still friends. Maybe better friends. Maybe. We're trying to see. And um, so what's going to happen this morning is Natalie is going to share, we call it a region testimony, but just her testimony. And so, and then Brad is going to teach from Matthew chapter 6, 1 through 18. Yes, I know it was way too much scripture, Brad. You don't have to bring it up about five times. I <laughs> Okay, maybe twice. I got to sit through the first service, and I'm telling you, I have so many notes on my phone, and I'm excited to listen again because I missed some things, and you guys are going to be really encouraged. But would you guys welcome Natalie as she comes to share her testimony? Thank you, Greg. Um, Before I share, since there are some younger ears in the room, I just want to give you a disclaimer that there's some mature content. So if you don't feel like that's going to be appropriate for your kids, you're free to take them out for a second. Um, otherwise, there might be some explaining to do later. Um, okay, hi, I'm Natalie, and I have a new life in Christ. Well, pause. I want to rewind a second. When I was watching Greg on stage at Watermark, Todd Wagner was like, let's pray over him as we're sending him to Wyoming. So all I heard is Wyoming, and I'm like, <gasps> I start sobbing. I was like, Brad, God didn't forget about us. Like, there's a pastor coming to Wyoming, and he's like, he's, he's planting this church in Cody. And Brad's like, babe, that's, 
like five hours from Jackson. And I was like, that's okay. It's here. It's in close proximity. So that I'm so excited. I was like, maybe we could go once a month at least. I don't know. So I listen to Greg's sermons all the time. Um, and to be able to see, to have seen the first service and now the second service, it is so amazing what we have helped just in a tiny way, like pray into existence, even though selfishly it wasn't for Jackson, it was for Cody. Um, it is so special that um, God has, has just built his church here. Um, so, hi, I'm Natalie. I have a new life in Christ, and I'm recovering from pride, perfectionism, and people-pleasing, which manifested in a secret life of an eating disorder, a lot of drinking, and promiscuity. Um, I was raised attending church on Sundays, but we were pew warmers at best. As I got older, my limited and very impersonal view of God only became narrower, and the Bible felt like an outdated rule book to me. As Paul would say in Romans 1, this summed up my teenage years. For although she knew God, she did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. She became futile in her thinking, and her foolish heart was darkened. Although she claimed to be wise, she became a fool, and God turned her over to the sinful desires of her heart. See, my self-destruction took root in college. It started with seemingly good things, academics, leadership, resume building, pursuing a career on Wall Street. After all, society rewards these things, and I had been well-conditioned to perform in high school. But these otherwise good pursuits became ultimate, and when they no longer satisfied, I turned to my biggest insecurity, which was my body. I grew up in the fad dieting culture of the 90s, and I was conditioned to count calories starting in the second grade. My body felt inadequate for as long as I could remember, and my insecurities were only magnified when I arrived on campus at the University of Alabama. Coming from Michigan, the girls were skinnier, prettier, tan, blonde, better dressed than anyone at my high school, so I immediately felt insufficient. Beauty became my objective the summer after my sophomore year. After 10 weeks of extreme dieting, I returned to campus in August, thin and perfect, and I was praised for my looks and body for the first time in my life. That's when it started. <laughs> I loved the attention so much, I was addicted to it, so I lost a few extra pounds just to be safe. That's when it took control, and by Thanksgiving, I should have been hospitalized, yet I'd never gotten more attention in my life. I was offered a modeling job in New York and used it to pay my way for plane tickets to interview for Wall Street internships. I had finally achieved the perfection I was seeking, but I was so sick. I couldn't look in the mirror because there was nothing left, and I was no longer in control. You see, this is how the enemy works. I never saw it coming. He was so sneaky. I was lavishing in all the success and attention from otherwise good things. I never saw it as sin until it went too far. For the better part of my 20s, I became enslaved to this secret life of eating disorder and addiction to attention from men. I spent weekends at the bars and don't remember most of those nights. It was all entangled in the desire for perfection, the fear of loneliness, and the pursuit of love. But I was a functional addict. You would have never known. Everyone went to the bars on weekends, so it didn't seem like that big of a deal. I had a great career, lots of friends, bought my own house, had the best clothes. I pursued everything that the world told me would bring me happiness, but I was completely numb and hollow. As the Bible says, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is full grown, it gives birth to death. I was dead inside. I never sought clinical counseling or treatment. It was instead someone else's bold confession in the context of community that ultimately led to my recovery. It started with one friend who persistently invited me to church. At an urban Bible church in Dallas, I started to hear truth for the first time in a new way. Her courage and persistence opened that door. Eventually, she challenged me to stop chasing so hard after whatever it was I was seeking and to start praying for it. 
She had no idea at the time about the men or the eating disorder. All she witnessed was the drinking. At the time, I couldn't retell the last evening that I hadn't had a sip of alcohol. That night, I prayed for God to heal my eating disorder and to send me a husband. I had prayed in desperation many times before, but this time I had a sobering awareness that I had a major part to play in it. I committed to stop drinking, stop purging, and stop pursuing men. It was a rocky road trying to muscle through with self-restraint. You see, I was trying to do it on my own. I didn't tell a soul, not even that friend. And my perpetual failure to stay sober of these sins just pushed me deeper. Interlaced through this whole journey was my relationship with Brad. The first time we dated, we had two feet firmly in the world. There were no boundaries and lots of booze, and it lasted three months. The second time was in the midst of me accompanying my friend to church. At the same time, there were several guys in Brad's life challenging him to do some soul searching. He'd also begun to attend Watermark and joined a guy's community group. We tried dating this time with boundaries, but we still had one foot in the world, and it only lasted, again, three months. The third time we dated, I was white-knuckling this self-imposed recovery of which he had no idea, and he asked to date me with intention and try putting faith first. He told me I would have to attend church, read the Bible, and join a girls' community group. <laughs> first, I was put off that he would tell me what to do, but I was really so weary of doing things my own way that I gave it a try. It was in that girls' community group that one of the women announced that she was also bulimic and needed to attend regeneration. I'd never told a soul, but that night, for the very first time, because of her courage, I confessed everything to her and began to surrender. I completed regeneration and then began to serve in regeneration for the years after. It wasn't long after that initial confession to my friend that Brad told me he loved me. I was trying really hard to fix myself for him so that he'd never have to know, but I'd run out of time. I had to tell him the truth that he had fallen in love with an imposter. So I confessed it all, my bulimia, my sexual sin, an affair with my boss, and lifelong consequences that I'll carry because of some of those decisions. I was damaged goods, and I knew that no one could love me once they uncovered the truth. But he stayed, and he explained that this is exactly what the cross was for, and he forgave it all. That night, 10 years ago, I finally understood. God became my God, and Jesus' sacrifice cleared all of the things that I had just confessed to him. God in his kindness answered my prayer for healing and a husband all in one. I completed Regen, led recovery groups until we moved to Wyoming. And since we don't have Regen or Celebrate Recovery in Jackson, um, I threw in with young adults and high schoolers. Because confession saved my life and because I'm no longer ashamed, I freely and openly share my story with young women in living rooms, on stages, and at coffee shops. And it saved souls. God took something so broken and shameful and messy and used it for good. I could have never imagined a decade ago that he was letting me endure all that pain for a bunch of teenage girls and young adults in Jackson, Wyoming. It took me being rock bottom, flat on my back to look up. It took desperation to surrender, and it took someone that I loved offering abundant grace and forgiveness to allow me to comprehend what Jesus was offering. She's always a really hard act to follow. <laughs> Better looking, more articulate, and her story is more emotional. Thank you, baby. Um, so, as Greg and Natalie mentioned, my name's Brad. Uh, let's all rise. We're going to read our scripture for today together. Um, we're not standing because of any sort of cultish thing. It's just honoring God's word, all right? So, I'll read for us. 
This is Matthew 6, 1 through 18. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. And your Father, who sees in secret, will reward you. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty praises as the Gentiles do. For they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need even before you ask him. Pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. And let us not, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. <coughs> Sorry. Second service thing, got me. Greg did say this was the better looking, more attentive service, so it's proving, proving to be accurate. Um, we're going to talk about prayer as, as one of our topics for today, so I'd be remiss if I didn't open with, with praying for my, my time in, in walking through this today. Father, you and I have talked a lot this week about this message, and I pray that you will be in this, that your Holy Spirit would fill this room. I pray that you would tell your people what you want them to learn, and that if I bring anything that's not of you today, that it would pass unnoticed and go in one ear and right out the other. God, you be glorified in this. May we make much of Christ. Amen. So, I'll open with a question, which is, who is the smartest person that ever lived? And I'm, I'm not fishing for compliments here, but the answer is Jesus. And Dallas Willard, who um, himself was a very smart person, uh, was the uh, chair of philosophy at, at uh, Southern Cal. Um, great theologian. He wrote a, a, several great books, but my favorite of his is this big, almost impenetrable tome uh, called The Divine Conspiracy. And in The Divine Conspiracy, he posits that Jesus is actually the smartest person uh, that's ever lived. And, and I know that feels a little like Sunday school Jesus juke kind of thing, but I bring it up because it's not something that we in, in, in church tend to think about much. 
which is the idea of Jesus the genius. And, and some of his genius is going to be portrayed today in, in just this, this brilliant message that he's bringing before us. Now, we're in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. We're in Matthew 6. And the danger of preaching through this amazing text is twofold. One, if you didn't grow up with a church background, you're probably still culturally aware um, of the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, you know, and your, your sort of mental summary goes and minded for a while. Something like, yada, yada, be a good person, amen. And that's not it. And the, the second danger is that those with a church background have heard, have, have kind of seen this text so many times and have heard so many messages preached on this that we tend to kind of gloss over just the, the, the depth and the impossibility of the call in practice that he's bringing to us. So the real point of what Jesus is going to bring to us today is to not practice our righteousness before others. Now, you've probably heard this referred to as the greatest sermon ever preached, and that's with good reason. I would challenge each and every one of us in this room in the coming week um, to just sit down at some point and, and pop open your Bible and just read Matthew 5 through 7. And, and just read through it, but read through it carefully and evaluate what the, what the just scandalous like, depth of the claims that he's bringing to us are. Because as we've already seen in the last couple of weeks, just in Matthew 5, there were three that I picked out for examples for us today. <clears throat> and by way of disclaimer, I use a lot of scripture um, slides as we go through so that you can see that I'm not making this up um, because you guys don't know me, so I don't have any credibility here. Um, but, so Matthew 5, it says, anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. 39, do not resist an evil person. If anyone wants to sue you and to take your shirt, hand over your cloak also. And in 44, he says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Now, these are impossible standards. They're meant to show all those listening, but especially the religious that they cannot and will not ever meet God's standards on their own effort. Like the law in the Old Testament shows, this is how to live, but it also is revealing our deeper need for a savior. So by way of personal intro, and you've, you've heard a little bit about me, probably too glowingly so, but um, this is a picture of my family. Um, you met Natalie, that's uh, Jack and Abby. Um, this is from a year ago, and much to Natalie's chagrin, we haven't gotten fancy photos taken since. So everybody's a year older. They look better. I look like this. Um, but you guys won't really care too much about the minute details of my life, but what you need to know about me is that I love this church. Um, your pastor is a dear friend of mine. Um, and in addition to that, you guys worship a perfect Savior. And so with those two things, like, I'm all in for Outpost. I love you guys. I, I set aside time every Wednesday and every Friday alongside praying for, for First B, which if you guys ever come through Jackson, uh, First B in Jackson, come on. Um, but to pray for the work that you guys are doing in this beautiful part of the state. Every Wednesday and Friday. Because I'm just, I'm about this church. And like Greg says, it's a people. Yay! See, we're on the same team. Um, but here's what you also need to know for our purposes today, is that I'm a sinner. If, because I've got the slides and the fancy face mic and that sort of thing, that, that you think I'm in any way formally qualified or that I'm in any way better or anything like that to, to be teaching you today, I'm not. Um, I'm a sinner. 
And so if, if, if what I would say that is important about my testimony is the short version is that I grew up attending church every Sunday. Grew up in Dallas. But we went to church on Sundays about the same way that we went to football games on Friday nights. And it, frankly, had about the same amount of impact on our lives. But as I was going through my life, and I, as I was just living the way that I wanted to live, I had some really dear friends that asked really hard questions of me. They said, Brad, you claim to be a Christian, but when we look at your life and when we look at your walk, we're not seeing these things reconciling. And so I, I, I bring that to you today because often in our culture, and even in church circles, we tend to think that the most loving thing is to be nice or is just to be kind. And those friends asked me really hard questions, and they didn't do it just once. They stuck with me as I worked through that process. And I would have been really frustrating to disciple through that. But they loved me in that, and they upset me at times. Now, they did so in a way that was seasoned with grace, that showed the grace of Christ, but they were pointing me to the truth of God's word, and they were pointing me to the inconsistencies that were in my life. And so in that moment, the most loving thing that they could have ever done, especially in view of eternity, was to say, hey, Brad, you're a Christian. What does that mean to you? And frankly, I didn't have a great answer. Now, through their challenge, I started diving deep into apologetics. I started diving deep into God's word. I started asking hard questions that I was, frankly, sometimes embarrassed to ask. And the result of it was that I was able to make the faith my own. And so now I'm just all in. And my life has not been, in, been easier or more prosperous since then, but I will tell you it has been more deeply rooted in an unshakable joy that is regardless of circumstances. I've personally seen God do some amazing miracles, both in terms of the things that we would consider to be sort of classical miracles. Shoot, I saw my mom last June, like, dying in Jackson. She gave her life to Christ, and she got out of that bed. And she's walking, she's running with God now. She's still got cancer. You know, we're all, we're all still gonna die. But her getting extra years where she's maturing with Christ, where she's getting to know her grandchildren better, where she and I are repairing our relationship, and we're doing all of it in Christ, it's such a blessing, and it is a downright miracle. So I've seen those miracles, and then I've also seen the miracles when irreconcilable sinners are brought near to one another and to a holy God. So I am serious about God's word. I love it. I get fired up. If at any point I raise my voice too much or I do too much of this, it's because I get really excited about this stuff. Yeah, that's probably fair. I don't have the glasses, though. Um, but... Uh, um, <laughs> but all that said, uh, I'm not a professional uh, teacher. I'm a commodities trader. Um, but I get excited about God's word. I love teaching God's word. I am an elder at our church uh, in Jackson. Um, but what I would ask of you guys is to please help me up here. And the way that you can do that is with some nonverbal stuff. So if you can smile, if you can nod, maybe take some notes, things like that. Things that help me, and I know we're in a Baptist building, but you can even say amen if I nail something. Like, you, you, can, you can help me with those sorts of things. Um, but lastly, I have a confession. 
which is that I want you guys to think well of me. I want you to think that I am intelligent, that I'm articulate, that I'm handsome, um, that, that I'm a little funny, like all of these things. But the problem with that is if I teach to that end, then I'm actually standing up here in front of God's people teaching in sin. We do not need more teachers in pulpits in this nation teaching for the approval of man. So what I have to remind myself when I'm preparing this message, and even in this moment when I'm looking at you guys and speaking to you guys, is that I have to teach for the kingdom of God. To that end, that's a little bit of what Jesus is going to warn us about today, is the idea of kind of this hypocrisy about living for the approval of man. Um, James 3, this is a, a verse that is always really close to me whenever I'm teaching. Because this is a heavy burden. And it says, my brothers and sisters, take note of this. Not many of you should become teachers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness, greater harshness. And that's a heavy burden when I, when I approach this. And I know that's something that Greg takes very, very seriously. So while you're more than likely to forget about me in the coming weeks, my job today is to spur you on to the love and good deeds that the writer of Hebrews talks about in Hebrews 10. So my job is to help you have that great week of worship. To, to remind you of God's truth. Not because I'm more brilliant or I'm teaching you anything new, but I'm just reminding you of the truth so that you can go forth in love and good deeds. So just to remind you where we are in scripture, Jesus is talking to a large crowd, but he's mostly teaching to his disciples. And he's doing so in northern Israel. I think we've got a map of that. And um, this is not far from his base of operations in Capernaum. He's standing on a hill overlooking the Sea of Galilee. And we've actually got a landscape photo that I took um, standing next to Greg. And now we were listening to Connor Baxter, who's taught here once before. Um, he had memorized the Sermon on the Mount and was just reciting it for us. And we're standing up there. Now, I tell you that, not to brag that I've been there or to brag on Connor for memorizing it, but to tell you that this is a real place and you can go there, and I would highly recommend that you do. Going there didn't fundamentally reshape my faith, but it did put it kind of into 3D or into Technicolor, depending on your generation. Um... But, so that's one point that I would make. And the second point is if you do go, have a better roommate than I did, which is that goofy guy. Um, that's actually the spot where we believe they took Jesus to throw him off the cliff. Like, it's, you, you walk through there, and it's just like every spot. You're like, oh, and this happened here, and this happened here. It's amazing. I'll let Greg get you fired up about that. Um, but more pertinent to our discussion today, Jesus is talking to a large crowd but he's teaching specifically to his disciples. He's talking to the people that are sold out, that are all in for Jesus, that are of his flock. And just in case that doesn't describe you, if you're just examining the faith, or if, like I was, you were just kind of going through like a cultural ritual, thank you for trusting us with your time, and especially for trusting me. And if it's your first time here, come back. There are other people that are better than this, better than me at this. So, I mentioned in my, in my brief testimony that I'd been in church my whole life, but I think the big dif biggest difference was that if you had asked me, I could not have articulated what we meant when we said the gospel. And, and what we generally mean, and, and the, the most complete definition of the gospel is actually what you're holding in your hands, not, not your iPhone, but the Bible. Like, that is the complete version of the gospel. So when we refer to it as the gospel of Matthew, we're talking about the entirety of the works that God has achieved through his eternally begotten son, Jesus, and how it's recorded in scripture. But we also have these shorter versions of what, of what we're talking about. And so 
to me, this is that you and I are both sinners, that we are completely irreconcilable to a holy and perfect God, that we were actually, if we were to be in his presence, it would destroy us because of his inability to be in the presence of sin. But God made perfect substitution for it in that Jesus, eternally existing with the Father, set aside his glory for a time and lived the most humble life. He lived in Roman-occupied Palestine. He was born to an uneducated and poor family, and yet he lived a perfect life. He set a perfect example for us, and then he died for us on the cross. And then he walked out of that grave. And those are our receipts, right? The payment can only be made for a debt once. And so if we would but, as Paul talks about in Romans 10, if we would but declare with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, that's us holding up the receipt and going, God, I can't pay this debt, but Jesus already did. And that's the empty tomb. So as much as we celebrate the cross, we can also celebrate the empty tomb. It just doesn't make as good of a necklace. should do that, something about that. Um, so that's what we mean when we say the gospel. And so just keep that in mind as we go forward today. I'm going to teach a lot about what we do, but our heart behind it is always in a relationship with Jesus, and that's what he's going to talk about today. And then when Paul is talking in Romans 10, like I quoted, that belief that he's talking about, that's not the same way that you and I believe that the Chiefs won the Super Bowl. We're talking about that a fact doesn't have to just be true, it has to be transformative, if you understand that difference. And that comes through submitting to and having a relationship with Jesus Christ. James 2.19 famously says, you believe there is one God, good. Even the demons believe that and they shudder. Demons have perfect theology, but they still rebel against God. Let us not, let that not be said of us. So um, one of the, my other favorite summaries of the gospel is from Tim Keller. Uh, and, and he says that we are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared to hope. So Jesus today is going to talk about beware of practicing righteousness before others. That's our big heading for today, and he's going to do three subheadings underneath that also um, have a pattern to them. So Jesus is going to discuss three things under that subheading, or as subheadings. It's going to be giving, praying, and fasting. The implied assumption here for all of us that follow Christ is that we will do these things. Jesus does not say if you give, pray, or fast, but he says when, and then he's telling us how. Now let me reframe that. Because one of the things that I wish I had known early on is that the most miserable people on earth are not the secular, but they're the religious. If you do not have a relationship with Jesus and you're trying to, to white-knuckle, like my wife talked about earlier, if you're trying to white-knuckle your way to righteousness on your own, you will fail, and when you fail, it will be spectacular and not in a good way. It will crack your worldview or maybe just even make you a jerk, which is how I dealt with it. So I'm kind of giving you today's biggest takeaway right here up front. We're doing dessert first today, which is that this is not a performative relationship. It is about what we believe, not about how we behave. Now, if you have right belief, it will change how you behave, but we cannot put that cart before the horse. Does that make sense? Let's practice a nod just to, all right, great. Um, so Jesus is going to lay out a pattern here. He's going to say, don't do this. 
For, don't do X, Y, and Z for public praise like the Pharisees do. For they have, two, for they have received their reward in full. Three, instead, you practice righteousness for the sake of your Father in heaven who justifies and will justify you. So Jesus uses the term here generally when he's referring to the sort of the enemies of this as hypocrites. And it's important for you to know as you're reading your Bible that we have adopted that term hypocrite culturally to mean kind of more Jesus's meaning. But when Jesus says that, it's a kind of a creative slight because he's referring to Greek play actors. Hypocrite was a real job. And so this is somebody that's holding up a mask, but it has something totally different going on underneath them. So again, it's been really well said that church, or in this case, righteousness, it's a terrible hobby. It takes a ton of time. I'm not that entertaining. And it's like, this is, this is not a good hobby. But if this is the fundamental changing fact of your life, then it brings so much joy that you can't imagine life without this church. A.W. Tozier has a famous quote, that what you believe about God in any given moment is the single most important thing about you. And so we have to remind ourselves constantly of the truth. And that's why we tend, why I, I, you know, most of you probably have a background in church. You're here on a Sunday. It's nice outside for the first time in like six months. But it's why I, I, I remind not just the unbelievers, but the believers about the truth of the gospel. Because we have to remind ourselves of that all the time. Okay, so let's talk about giving real quick. So Matthew 6, verses 2 through 4. Now, you don't know me. I don't have any credibility here. Aside from the fact that Greg gave me a too kind of an intro. But so I want to make clear that this is not a money grab. I'm not reaching for your wallet. I don't care what you do with your money. I only care about it insofar as you are a brother or sister of mine in Christ. And Greg doesn't care about what you do with your money. Only insofar as he's a brother or sister in Christ. And that he has to answer for you. Tricky doctrinal question. We'll get to that one. Um, or you will, actually. Um, but... God cares about what you do with the resources that he has entrusted you with. And that's why Greg cares. That's why I care. So the really simple summary of what I'm going to unpack here around giving is that God does not need your money. He's God. But he wants your heart. And if God has your heart, you are going to steward your resources in a way that is going to glorify him. And, and this is really important to think about because Jesus talks more about money than about any other single topic in the Bible. More, about, more than about serving, more than about sex, any of that other stuff. And the reason why is that Jesus knew our temptations. Jesus took on flesh. He lived our life. He experienced our temptations. So when Jesus is talking about this, he knows that this is the sneakiest of the things that can grab our heart. For example, if you're struggling with lust, you tend to know it. You don't wake up one morning and go, you're not my wife. Right? Like, you know when you're struggling with lust. But all of us tend to struggle in some capacity with greed, and I would reckon that most of us aren't aware of it. John D. Rockefeller, one of the richest men in history, was once asked how much money it takes to make a man happy. And his famous reply was just a little bit more. Wealth is a more accurate translation than money. It represents power for us, not just over others, but over circumstances, over ourselves. If, if we have money, we can kind of declare ourselves independent of our friends, of our family, of our church, 
of our God. When you get anxious about life, something bad's going on, we tend to spend a little bit, right? We buy that little thing that almost feels productive. Or maybe that thing that we kind of wanted. Or if you're not a spender, we can check our bank accounts or our investment statements or update our personal financials. And somehow that makes us feel better because it, it feels like we're, we're having more control in spite of the circumstances that are going on around us. And it, I, I do, I'm guilty of this. I'm preaching to myself here. But that's not a biblical view. We tend to say, as long as I have you know, money or, or, or things like that, then I'll be okay. Uh, the positive, that, so that's the negative of like losing it. The positive is when we tend to think about what would happen if we won the lottery, we tend to think about ourselves, right? I do this too. And that's not the right view, right? We need to think about the kingdom. And one of the ways that we can grow in that, that we can imbue that deepest truth into ourselves, remind us of, of, of what matters, is by giving. Because when we give, we are saying that money is not our master. I am free to give this away. In Luke 12, Jesus tells a parable. Biblical trivia. This is the only man that Jesus calls a fool in the Bible. So keep that in mind as we read this. He told him a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and I will build bigger ones. And there I will store all my grains and my goods. And then I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things that you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. That's a convicting set of verses for me. Similarly, Paul, when he's writing to his protege Timothy in 1 Timothy 6, he says, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierce themselves with many pangs. Now, one quick correction from the culture is, sorry, Pink Floyd fans, but money is not the root of all evil. The love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. So money is a tool, a test, and a testimony. So it's a tool in that we can use it to accomplish things for the kingdom. It's a test and that God's given us the opportunity to be, to be faithful with it. And it's a testimony because those around us see the way that we steward our resources, not because we're stewarding it for the sake of being seen by others, but people will naturally see what's going on in your life. So it's a tool, it's a test, and it's a testimony. Giving, then, is the antidote to the allure of the control of wealth, or through wealth. Now, a biblical definition for giving today is that giving is a financial or material expression of obedience, gratitude, trust, and joy. So four things about giving. We know that it's to be a priority, i.e., this is the idea of first fruits. We know that it's to be done proportionally. When your resources increase, does it increase your standard of living or does it increase your standard of giving? So we want for it to increase our standard of giving. Third, it should be sacrificial. It should affect your lifestyle. It should cost you something. And fourth, it should be done cheerfully. So that's, it should be a priority. It should be done proportionally. 
it should affect your lifestyle, and it should be cheerfully done. So let's take a look at the uh, passage on giving. Note here, like I said earlier, that it's assumed that you will give. How much is a topic for another sermon? I'll let Greg get into that. But brief rule of thumb, give no more than Christ. How much did Christ give for you? All. And let's give enough that, it's, that, it, that it hurts your lifestyle a little bit. Somewhere in there, and then ask Greg for the specific amounts. So I've told you already that I love this church. We are, uh, Natalie and I are supporters of this church, uh, prayerfully as well as financially. Now, according to this text, in telling you that, in a way, I'm actually like forfeiting my eternal reward that might come from, from supporting this church. I'm willing to do that today as a means of encouraging and exhorting you guys. Um, and if you want to dig into the tricky doctrinal issue of like how does God reward people eternally, um, you can email... Greg at outpostcommunity.org. Um, but, but what Jesus is really warning about, <laughs> yeah, that's right. Um, what Jesus is really warning about is he's warning about public giving. So don't, don't try to be seen giving publicly. Don't get your name put on buildings. Don't try to foster this general air of generosity in the community. Give for the sake of the kingdom. You have to give in it with a kingdom-oriented goal. Okay, so moving on, that's giving. Let's talk about prayer. Prayer is similar to giving. It's assumed that you will do it. The difference here is that Jesus gives us a perfect model for prayer. But he gives us a couple of quick warnings on what not to do regarding prayer. First, he says, don't. Pray in the public square and in the streets to show your righteousness. We know from the rest of the Bible, this is not a prohibition on praying together corporately. It's okay to be seen praying. It's about the heart. But I will say that if your only prayer time is together with people at meals or in corporate worship, that's a good heart check on, on where your relationship is with God. I'm not questioning your salvation. I'm saying give, give yourself a good check. Why am I not being drawn to spending time in intimacy with God? Because that's what prayer is. Prayer is an opportunity to experience intimacy with our creator and savior. Second, he says, don't heap up empty praises. Now, we're going to read the Lord's Prayer together in a minute. Um, but you know how long it took God in the flesh to teach his disciples how to pray? About 20 seconds. So we can keep that in mind the next time we go to a prayer meeting. Does anybody else here get intimidated going, like, praying out loud in a prayer meeting? Okay, just me? Great. Um, <laughs> um, but what's, what's funny is, like, we don't have to hold court for 10 minutes when we're going to pray authentically to our God. Like I said, the Lord's Prayer took 20 seconds. Similarly, we also, while we're on the topic of like praying in groups, we don't have to pray fancy. Like, we don't have to start speaking like we're Rhodes Scholars. We don't have to pray like we're Shakespeare. We don't have to pray in the King James Version just for God to hear us. Pray authentically. Uh, Matt Chandler famously says, pray what you've got. Pray what's on your heart. And I just love that. That's how, you, how to get better at praying. Go to God and go, God, help me pray better. Like that's a prayer that God's gonna honor. Help me pray more. Give me a heart that wants to pray more. That's something that God will answer. Okay, 
all rise. We're going to read the Lord's Prayer together. Now, before we get into it, don't just read it. We're trying to practice. We're trying to grow our prayer muscles here. So as you read the words in the screen, and we're going to do it all together as if it's a high liturgical church, um, but pray it. Remember who you're talking to because you're not just talking to the people next to me and you're sure as heck not talking to me. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. First service, they did the thing with, you know, for thine is the kingdom and power of the glory. That's a different version. Great job, 11 o'clock. They're better looking and smarter. And the people that did double duty, even more so, just to cover my bases there. Um, remember, I'm not preaching for public approval or something. Um, so I promised earlier that we'd cover some basics on prayer. Um, what is prayer? Uh, the, the, the smartest men in the history of the faith have dedicated tons and tons of time to talking about prayer. And I'm covering this in about five minutes. So give me a little grace if I'm not covering sort of your favorite aspects of prayer. Um, but when I'm, when I'm working with people, I'm praying more. And this is something that I found very effective in my own life. I have two models. One is uh, either the Acts or Cats model, depending on whether you start with confession or adoration. So that would be, um, do we have that? Yep. Yeah. So adoration. So how to pray for adoration for God. This is recognition of who God is. This is giving us a right view of God. God, you are holy. You are the creator of everything. You sent Jesus for us, and yet you take care of me? God, who are you? And how can I glorify you better? That's adoration. That's a right view of God. Confession, then, is a right view of ourselves. God, I am struggling with material thoughts. I struggle, and this is Brad talking, I, am, I struggle anytime my comfort or my illusion of control is threatened. That's what makes my blood boil up. God, I also will confess that in the last week, I was harsh with my children, and I didn't give my wife the time and conversation that she deserved. That's confession. Now, there's an old rule of thumb that if you want to be forgiven your sins, confess to God. If you want to be healed from them, confess to your brother or sister in Christ. And I love that. But we need to do both. So that's confession and prayer to God. Thanksgiving, then. Really healthy habit. And this is a little self-helpy, but um, write down in your quiet time five things that you're grateful for that day, that you are acutely aware of in that moment. And stay there until you think of those things, and it's going to set you up for a better walk with Christ. Um, so... That can be, you know, in lieu of adoration and confession. God, thank you that you forgive me of, that, of those sins, of this, of this dirty, selfish heart. Thank you that you've accomplished something for it. Thank you for my wife, for the way that... And, and so make them specific, right? Don't just say, thanks for the house, thanks for the wife, thanks for, you know, the older of the two kids, thanks, for, you know, like that sort of thing. Like... Pray specific ways because you're praying truths in yourself. The main point of prayer is to shape our hearts to be more like Christ, to make us want more of God. 
Now, so that's the, the, the first models, is, is acts or cats. Oh, and then supplication. Supplication is what we do naturally. Supplication is, God, can you do this? God, will you do this? God, show me this. What I would encourage you with supplication is make sure that it's kingdom-focused. Um, James writes that uh, we pray and we don't receive because we, we pray to spend it on ourselves. Pray instead with a kingdom mindset, and God will answer those prayers. Second model is like what we just did with reading the Lord's Prayer altogether. Take the Lord's Prayer, have it in front of you, in print, on your phone, whatever, and repeat it in your own words. So, our Father in heaven. Pause. God, you exist outside of all space and time. You are sovereign over everything. Hallowed be thy name. God, all glory, honor, power be to you. Help me glorify you today. That's how you can take the Lord's prayer and you can put it in your own words and that will train you. That is going to grow your prayer muscles like nothing you've ever experienced. Uh, a third great resource is um, John Piper has a thing on his website Desiring God called the six prayers that God always answers. We have a slide for it. We're not going to unpack it uh, in full today, but this is a phenomenal way to pray. So you can always just Google Shoot, you can just Google John Piper anything. You'll be in a good spot. But John Piper's Six Prayers That God Always Answers, this is a great resource. It's got textual backup for it as well. And so you just start going through that, and you start praying it, and you pray scripture into yourself. Now, there's two kinds of prayer that I want to clarify real quick. I call them meals and snacks. The meal is the dedicated quiet time. That's with a prayer sheet, I have a prayer sheet. I've had it for years. It's greatly influenced. Spend 20 minutes putting one together, and you'll spend a decade revising it and improving it. But it does help structure my prayer time. So those times when I'm feeling dry where I don't know what to bring to God, I have all this written down on a page that sits right next to my Bible. Um, and that's not, I don't, I've never had a good idea in my life. I just steal good things from other people. Um, but uh, this is, these six prayers are one of the things that's on the top on the margins of my prayer sheet. If you want to see my prayer sheet, email me. I'll send it to you. It's a little intimate, but we'll get through it. Um, uh, but the, So that's a meal. And then the snack is like when you think of something or someone or somebody sends you a request, that's, that's, that's kind of the walkie-talkie prayer or the text message prayer. But if the, if the entirety of your relationship with anybody consists just of text messages, that's not a very healthy relationship. Similarly with God, if the only time you pray is when you're driving down the road and you go, oh, God, I think I, I thought of this, I thought of this, help me with this meeting, help me, you know, with this sort of thing. Those are snacks, those are text messages, those are great, do those. Recognize that God is sovereign, not just in the big things, but also in the small things, and give it up to him, but it can't be the entirety of things. Okay, so that's prayer. Fasting. Jesus did not actually spend a ton of time talking about fasting with his disciples. And the main reason is because it was culturally in, uh, like relevant then. Everybody fasted. If you're, if you're teaching in first century Palestine, it's kind of assumed that everybody's fasting for one reason or another. Now, for our purposes today, we're going to define fasting as to voluntarily reduce or eliminate your intake of food for a specific time and purpose. Voluntarily reduce or eliminate your intake of food for a specific time and purpose. Fasting is really simple. Skip a meal. Instead of cooking, cleaning, and eating, spend that time in prayer. And this verse says that God is going to reward it. Um, start with one. Bill Bright has a, a great little pamphlet. It takes five minutes to read. He's the 
founder of Campus Crusade for Christ, so he's got some chops. But uh, great little pamphlet on how to extend that into a multi-day fast. Full confession, cards on the table. I have not done a multi-day fast. But I will tell you that the times that I've skipped meals or skipped two meals or fasted sunrise to sunset, which is another great one, which in December here is super easy. Um, but... Uh, uh, then you can go to a 24-hour fast. But God will reward it. And what you're teaching yourself, if, if giving is teaching yourself that, that money is not your master, and if prayer is teaching yourself that God is your master, fasting is teaching yourself that your stomach is not your master, that you can set aside your fleshly desires for a time to glorify God, and you'll be okay. So, Keep in mind what Jesus' core teaching on fasting is in this, though. When you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by others. But when you fast, anoint your head, wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others. So when you fast, take a shower. Like, that's literally what the text is saying. Like, like clean up, wear, wear normal clothes. It's not sackcloth and ashes. Um, but just like giving and praying, what it is expected of followers, it doesn't say how often, it doesn't say for how long, it's just expected of us. And do it with a heart oriented towards God, not towards things. That's about all the time I have for today. So I just want to say thank you guys for studying this with me. I hope this has benefited you in any way nearly as much as it has benefited me in preparing. I've been convicted on fasting, for example, that this is something that like, we don't check in with on my community group. Hey, have you spent any time fasting recently? And that's something that as I, as I go back to Jackson and like talk with my guys, we're going to talk about this. Now, for you guys, as you get in the car today, the tendency is going to be to ask each other, what'd you think? What I will ask of you guys is don't ask that question. Ask instead, what did God say to you today? What are you going to do about it? It's the so what of the sermon. How did God use Brad as a broken vessel to move you along the Christian maturity, move you along in Christian maturity? Now, I talked an awful lot about what we should do and how we should do it. And so I have to bring it back to one of my favorite verses in all of Scripture, which is Romans 8, 1 and 2. There is therefore now no condemnation, but only for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Two big points there. No condemnation, but it's only for those who are in Christ Jesus. And that is both so liberating and so heavy for me when I dwell on that verse. Structure some prayer around that verse for a little while. Second, I would genuinely like your feedback. If you want my prayer sheet, if you want to just touch base, if you're coming to Jackson, you want to visit First B and you want to check in beforehand, um, here's my contact information. If anybody wants to scribble that down, you now know how to reach me and you've got a friend in Teton County because you may or may not have had one before. Um, come on, let's do it. So that's all I've got. But what I would say is, and I'll invite the band back up. Um, May God bless you, Outpost Church. Not so that you can be comfortable, 
but so that you can be a blessing to the kingdom of God as it's brought near here in Cody, Wyoming. I love you guys. Thank you so much for having me. And I'm going to pray us out as the band um, starts to starts to play. Father, I pray that none of what we do here would be performance-oriented, that we would not do anything for the approval of man, but that we would do it in sight of you, a holy, eternal, and sovereign God. Thank you that all of our sin has been wiped away, that when Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We can take faith and hope and joy in the fact that we will never have to make up our week. Help us glorify you, make much of you. Thank you for my friends here at Outpost. Bless this church, Father. It's Jesus' name.
so what my takeaway. It's something we always want to end a service with and I encourage you to do. But my takeaway, guys, is just the genuine sincerity that Jesus calls us to is so cool. Uh, and sincerity just basically means, it, when you see it in the Bible, it just means it's singularly focused, not double-minded. And everything that we talked about today, as Brad just showed us, is that God is calling us to be sincere, not doing things just so we can get some other thing, not being a hypocrite and that we show one face behind the scenes we're really somebody else, but that Jesus is inviting us into just being genuine and living genuinely with one another. In the way that we give and the way that we pray and the way that we fast and relate with God, God doesn't want some made-up version of you. He wants the real you. And the reality is he already knows who you are, and that's encouraging for me. And I love it because it reminds me that my Savior is genuine. And he is sincere. He's not trying to rip me off. He's not trying to sell me something. He's not just trying to take my food and my money. He's not trying to just take my time as I talk to him. He, like, genuinely loves me and cares for me and wants me to have a thriving relationship with him. And I love what Brad said in the first service and in the second, that there was a hole that he had in his heart. And he had a lot of the things of the world. It wasn't until he finally got real about what was real in his life that they began to see Jesus for who he really was. And guys, I want to tell you, that's what he's inviting all of us into. And if some of you in this room, you are believers and you've been following Jesus and he is continuing to show you those places, right? Like he's showing me. And I want to just encourage you to keep taking steps of sincerity. She's like, I want to really be about what I say I'm about and I need other people to help me. And I want to tell you this, if you are in here and you don't have a relationship with Jesus, I don't care how old you are, listen. God is not trying to rip you off. He is trying to set you free. And he's being honest with you. And so if you want to take a step into a relationship with Jesus and find out honestly how good it really is to know and love Christ, man, it simply comes down to one simple thing. And listen, every one of you can do it. It's just if you believe in Jesus, you will be saved. That's all the Bible says. It doesn't say you got to attend some church. You don't have to look good. You don't have to dress nice. You don't have to be intellectual. You don't have to have a lot of money. You don't have to give a lot, fast a lot, pray a lot. You just simply have to say, this man Jesus I believe in. He's not just a good guy. He is the guy, and I want to follow him. And if you say that and you commit to him, that's how you get saved. And then he will help you, and we would love to help you know how you take the next steps now if you believe in Jesus. So if you want to have a conversation with somebody, I, I live to have that conversation. So you can come on up after we're all done. I'll be up here. I would love to be your friend and talk to you about that. If you came with a friend, ask them about it. If they have a relationship with Jesus and they've inspired you, man, ask them. And let's be a group of people who go and seek the welfare of the city like Jesus would if you live here. Amen? Let's have a great week of worship. Friends, cannot wait to see you next week. And uh, be sure to thank Brad for being faithful and sharing. I am blessed with amazing friends. But you guys have a great week. We'll see you next week.